This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 121 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, with the help of special guest Curtis Chen, we discuss Edgar Rice Burroughs' 1912 novel, A Princess of Mars. Welcome, friends, to season four. That's right, we're doing seasons now. <laughs> <laughs> um, joining us to kick off 2020 is Curtis Chen, the author of the sci fi thrillers Waypoint Kangaroo and Kangaroo 2. Welcome to the show, Curtis. Hey, thanks for having me on. We have had you on the books for a very long time now, Curtis. You're you're a guest that has, that has been in the pipeline, so it's it's great to finally have you on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again. I mean, I I live in Portland, so I see see Luke around town. So, um, and I've listened to the podcast a little bit. So, yeah, it's really cool to be here. Thanks. Yeah, uh, Curtis is uh, one of the first people to sort of introduce me to the Portland writing scene very welcoming so thank you for doing that you know i have you on the show i gotta publicly thank you for that it was it was oh, awesome yeah. and no absolutely I, i've met so many great writers yeah. through you so i really appreciate it no it's great to hear i mean sometimes i feel like everyone else having that experience is just sort of a side effect of me wanting to have that experience for myself to like you know get right. people together talk about writing and you know because we often work alone and by ourselves so it's nice to you know have excuses to get together and actually talk about the kind of work that we're doing and the struggles that we're all going through all the time. So yeah, I remember way back, I think during our first year, uh, Curtis actually lent me his copy of Die Hard. So he's kind of been a part of the podcast, I think for a long time is, you know, out, <laughs> outside of it. And so I'm glad that we finally got you on. In fact, I think we had a conversation way back at like the Multnomah Whiskey Library, in which I talked about my idea for this podcast with you, Curtis. Do you remember that? Uh, that's entirely possible. I mean, there was whiskey involved, so <laughs> I mean, I remember everything too clearly. But yeah, no, we did talk about this a, a while back because, yeah, it's not a current book uh, that's coming out. I guess one of your patrons uh, requested this particular project, um, but it's really interesting, I have to say, and we'll get into that later on. Absolutely. In fact, uh, that is a great segue. Uh, this this episode was actually commissioned, this project, jointly by Ben E., Chris C. and Stephen E. They all combined forces with their tokens and commissioned this. Um, and, and I know that it's a popular, uh, it's, it's a kind of a cult classic um, film. And I know that there is a large contingent of Edgar Rice Burroughs fans out there still, um, which is kind of incredible since this is a hundred year plus old novel now, um, which yeah. is wild to think about. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that people wanted. Um, hopefully they enjoy our coverage of it. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but yeah, shout out to you three. Hopefully you guys like this. And uh, thank you for commissioning it. Thank you for all our patrons for supporting us. Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys so much. I, I This is such an interesting project because I feel like this is one that gets I get asked about a lot. People say like, oh, have you done John Carter? Because mm -hmm. like you said, it is. It, it, I, I don't know if I would call it cult, like cult following, but it definitely has like this interesting group of people who are passionate about it because... The movie has its own things, but this is such a, this, this, clearly this is a hundred years old. So it, it would influence a lot of the sci-fi stories that we've seen over the years. And, um, 
I don't know. It's interesting because there there are times where I felt like, um, you know, I know that this is this is the impetus. This is where everything comes from, or like you know, a lot of the things maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it feels like uh, maybe it's um, old hat at this point. If you if you know what I mean, I don't know. While reading this story, I felt I felt that a little bit. Yeah, I do have to say, I I was sort of aware of. I don't know if I've actually read this whole novel in its entirety before this, but I think we're all sort of aware of some of the, you know, the, the characters certainly, and the, the sort of ideas about uh, Mars that are introduced here, right. With, you know, the different colored races and all that stuff. And I, I mean, yeah. I, I have a couple of things uh, to mention later on about how this has sort of influenced other stories and, Uh, how other people sort of write fiction about Mars. I think every science fiction writer has at least like one Mars story that at least they at least try to write at some point in their careers. (laughs) It's like this big thing. Yeah, I like that. Um, So before we get too much into it, actually, uh, Curtis was nice enough to donate uh, a a copy of each of his novels that we're going to do as a giveaway to our listeners. Um, If you're listening to this episode, you've done everything you need to do. Um, we're going to give out a code word, and that code word is kangaroo. So just put kangaroo in your email title and email us at inktofilm at gmail.com. Let us know that you're interested in entering to win. And if you do, you're going to get two uh, books, kangaroo, uh, Waypoint Kangaroo and Kangaroo 2, each signed by Curtis. So definitely do that. I mean, we'll send them to you for free. So you're listening. Why not? Give it a go. And yeah, once again, thank you, Curtis, for for doing that. I think it's uh, it's really cool, and that's something we we like to do with our guests whenever possible. You know, and, and, and in fact, people who like these kind of uh, interplanetary romances and <laughs> um, you know these space travel and, and obviously very different. But um, I think if you're enjoying this kind of stuff, that this kind of subject matter, that they would enjoy your books. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to you know get them out there a little more. So I know this is a ton of books published every year, and sometimes it's hard to sort of tell people about things when there's new stuff coming out every week. And <laughs> yeah, you know, I right. think they're I think they're fun. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, our, I'm sure knowing our listeners, like people people would be excited to to check those out. All right, so let's do a little. Maybe talk a little more general thoughts I, I, before we get into it. I, I do want to give a bio for Edgar Rice Burroughs and talk about the mm-hmm. kind of story behind the story, but. You guys were both touching on things that I think is really important for me that I had to keep remembering because it's kind of difficult to t- to read this novel and sort of think of it critically from like today's point of view. Because obviously yeah. if this was written today by a writer, like there's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't forgive, you know. Um, right. and, and that's going to vary from person to person. Like how much are you willing to look back through antiquity and, and, and the lens of time and like do you forgive certain things or what have you. I mean, obviously, there's some problematic stuff in here, um, but this is a person who's writing in a completely different sort of society than what we have now. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, he's a white man, and so he's writing from a place of privilege. Um, But, you know, even doing this was was sort of risky for him, which we're going to talk about. Um, In fact, he felt like he needed to write under a pen name just because (laughs) writing this sort of fiction wasn't done. Um, And it was considered sort of taboo and, and childish and and something that a respectable person wouldn't even do. So from the science fiction point of view, like it is really important, I think, to look at this as, as sort of a seminal work and, and something that went on to influence tons of uh, you know major projects that we are all aware of, like Star Wars and just all of these sort of uh, space opera stories that came afterwards. Yeah, as soon as they started talking about um, resources and, 
and things like that. It made me think of Dune. It made me think of like so so many different things, uh, so many different sci-fi related stories. Um, I do have one statement that I wrote down that I feel like really encompasses my thoughts on this, but I want to say that last. I'd like to, I'd like to hear what you guys thought. Just overall, like, um, how did you feel about sort of the the planet itself? How did you feel about the characters? How did you feel about? Well, let's talk specifically. How did you feel about the main character, John Carter, <laughs> gentleman of Virginia? Yeah, mm-hmm. the gentleman of Virginia. Yeah, which by the way was a Confederate state in the Civil War, <laughs> like. I don't right. think that's ever mentioned explicitly in this novel, and I'm curious as yeah they whether they deal with that at, at all in the movie, which was made like it was like 2012 or something, so also like a hundred years later. But like, hey, right. the hero of our story was like fought <laughs> pro slavery, guys. Just FYI, <laughs> like, and yeah. now he's um, on a planet where they have slaves, and he's like, ah, no big deal. Like, I mean, that was one thing that was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I haven't seen the movie. Um, it sounds like. Have, have you seen it, Curtis? I did when it came out, but I at this point I have very vague memories of it. So obviously, okay. it didn't make a huge impression. Um, and right. I think when I saw it at that time, I don't think I had read this book or certainly hadn't read it recently. So I mm-hmm. didn't re- wasn't really looking for like, oh, did they adapt this specific thing this way? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they may have taken possibly some things from the later books and sort of worked it into the the movie because uh, this, this first novel uh, feels like it ends very abruptly. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a cliffhanger. Yeah, that's true. Sort of, yeah. Uh, and what, I mean, knowing that there is a whole series of these later on, um, it kind of makes sense. Um, but yeah, I so one other thing I wanted to say was that as a writer, it was interesting to read this novel because it was written in such a different style than a lot of novels are these days, right? Mm. Like there's a lot of very sort of, you know, long chunks of dialogue where people are just talking to each other. Um and the whole sort of framing device of this is a real manuscript that like my uncle gave me and you know all that <laughs> yeah, kind of right. stuff. I feel like that I was, was kind of fun. Yeah, and I feel like that was more of a thing, you know, back around you know the turn of the century in terms of writing, mm-hmm. where like it was you know it was a style to have some kind of framing device, so the reader wasn't just getting something. Uh, on the page and was being asked to suspend their disbelief in terms of like, you know, a first person narrative where, mm-hmm. you know, that person couldn't possibly be telling you what's happening in that way, right. but you're accepting it because that's just how the story <laughs> is being told. Whereas yeah, I think, which we wouldn't even bat an eye at today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, yeah. So that sounds very interesting as a reading experience. Um, and, yeah. and I think it also helped me sort of to get back to the original point it helped me sort of frame my expectations of like, how the story was going to go and how people were going to behave knowing because it just felt so old timey the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Presently I uh, perceive that James has not weighed in on whether or not he saw the movie. So <laughs> <laughs> the way it was like the, the language of this book was like, there are certain things that are like really, um, are really beautiful and, and you kind of, it's like mm-hmm. that old timey language, but then oh, the yeah, other things sure. I'm like, man, I'm glad we don't talk like that anymore or write like that anymore. <laughs> yeah. The word presently is yeah. used so often and I'm like, cut it, cut the word presently. You don't need it. <laughs> yeah. 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 There are definitely a lot of little like flourishes that mm-hmm. I think most readers will not stand for right now. Just like get to the point. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> oh, seriously though, James, have you seen this movie? <laughs> 
I have seen the movie, yes. Uh, so interesting, you know, there's a ton to talk about with the movie, and I'm excited to get into that. But just just as a little teaser, there, there is sort of a... <laughs> next week we'll talk about it. Right. But there was sort of a... Um, it was sort of known as like a, this massive flop, right? And um, I remember seeing it in theaters when it, when it came out originally and walking out thinking like, this is the movie that's flopping. Like this is, I, this is, this is far better than, you know, the worst thing Disney's ever put out. <laughs> so it's very interesting kind of like just set up for, for us to talk about that movie there. Um, not to mention that like, you know, what we're already, what I was already speaking of and what I feel like maybe all of us were feeling is that sort of feeling like we'd seen this story before a hundred times. Mm. And, mm-hmm. you know, because it's so old, you know, you, you kind of have to look through a different lens. And like, I feel like, I feel this way a lot when I watch older films as well, where it's like, you have to put yourself in that, in that period. You have to try to, because it's not fair to say like, oh, all of these things that came after are better because, you know, they took this thing and did it better. It's not really fair because, you know, without this story, maybe we wouldn't have gotten some things that are maybe star wars would have been a different kind of story and mm-hmm. and uh i i think it's it's interesting to think that this story feels dated it, and it very much is a dated story but at the same time it kind of you can see like the ripples that it would have through the sci-fi community and like and how important of a story it seemingly is um I'll be interested to hear more about the backstory of the author and sort of like the impact of the book if if you've had any of that in your research luke yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great segue, guys. <laughs> uh, so let me tell you a little bit about Edgar Rice Burroughs and sort of the history of, of, writing, of writing this. Um, he was born in 1875, died in 1950. I think, by the way, this is our, maybe our oldest project we've covered as an aside other than like the, you know, myth of, or legend of Snow White that we covered mm-hmm. that has kind of an unknown origin. Um, but this is this is going way back. This came out in 1912, um, published originally in a serial format in the magazine called The All Story Magazine. Um, so backing up a little bit, Burroughs was essentially a failed businessman who was struggling to make ends meet for his family, um, and he turned to writing as like a last-ditch thing to try and make some money. Um, and... He invented this character, John Carter, and he, he, he at first he didn't know if he would be willing to put himself out there um, and potentially publish this thing because of the, what it would do to his reputation. Um, so when he did submit it, he submitted it and he wanted to be published under the pen name uh, Normal Bean. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's the most abnormal yeah. name you can ever think of. <laughs> yeah, because because he wanted the, the pen name to suggest a, that despite the incredible nature of the story, he was still a sane, reliable character. <laughs> um, what's funny, though, is that the, 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 I think the, the typist who was doing the magazine thought it was, a, uh, it was, thought it was an error, and so it was published originally under the pen name Norman Bean. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading about this, I think. <laughs> he did sell the manuscript for $400 to the editor, which I did some quick calculations, and with inflation, that's approximately $10,000 today, um, which bad. is pretty good. But, I mean, obviously, this is something he worked on for a couple of years, so still, you know, $10,000, but pretty good. Um, and originally, the, uh, the, the magazine editor told him that he needed to cut the section called Sola tells me her story. <laughs> um, so that was that, that whole section where Sola kind of goes into her backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, that was omitted from the original run, but was later, later restored when it was published as a novel. 
Hmm. It's pretty funny because I actually like felt like that was a pretty pivotal part of the book. Personally. Yeah, yeah, same here. Yeah, I agree. So that's why I thought it was noticeable, <laughs> notable that the that the editor was like, "We got to cut that." <laughs> yeah, right. It's a woman talking. What we can't have that. <laughs> right. Who is this? Oh, why that reminds care? me. That reminds me. I set something up in the general thoughts that I didn't pay off. I wanted to say this real quick. Um, there was a statement that I that I came up with to kind of ca- encapsulate my thoughts. Um, mm. And I don't, and now we're talking about the person and it's a little more personal and I don't mean, you know, that much disrespect in this, but, (laughs) but my statement is this story feels like something that a really crazy and also creative grandpa tells someone (laughs) like it it feels like a grandpa, like (laughs) that's what it reminds me of is just like this crazy old grandpa telling some stories about, you know, the way that they talk about women in the story. Like it just, it really, that, that, that's how I felt. Then I killed ten Martians with my sword. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Oh, I actually have. Uh, I don't know if uh, James. I don't know if you even know this, and I, I probably should have said it a lot sooner. But did you know that Edgar Rice Burroughs also is the creator of Tarzan? I actually did know that. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably okay, much so that's, more yeah. well known for that. Much more well known for that. And I should have said it earlier. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's one of the most, it's considered one of the most well known literary characters. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for his time, when he, through, through his run with Tarzan, he ended up outselling uh, contemporaries like um, Hemingway and and um, Faulkner and a couple of these other guys. Like he, all of them combined, is what I was reading. He outsold them all. Did he write the Tarzan stories after the Mars stories, or were they concurrent? Do you know? Yes. Um, so this was his first his first published work oh, was okay. this story. <laughs> yeah, he wrote it when he was thirty five, um, and he would go. He had success with it, and then I think he wrote a trilogy. He did serialize, and then somewhere they don't have the exact year, but I think it was like nineteen seventeen or something around there. He, he started publishing Tarzan, hmm. and that really really took off. Yeah. Um, but this was also very popular. Um, people really like this. This is actually also important. I think. I mean, we could go into and and I haven't done enough research, but this was sort of the advent of the popularity of these pulp magazines, which were following in the shoes of the things like the Penny Dreadfuls that came before them. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really this sort of um, movement because p- paper was getting cheaper, production was getting a little cheaper, and they were trying to get you know fiction out there, for, quote unquote, for the masses. Um, so even just, I think, speculative fiction in a lot of ways, and in, in a lot of what people read today and is very popular, um, a lot of those roots can be found in those early pulp magazines. Um, and, and this is one of the biggest authors who sort of was a tentpole author for that entire industry. Hmm. Now, I, you know, it's funny, like speaking about both of these stories now, I feel like there's a lot of similarities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely sort of white man in a in another world and he becomes awesome and he <laughs> learns the ways of their their culture and he's he's great and he's got an animal sidekick and, yeah wears very little clothing apparently <laughs> that's true it's it's sexy you know and <laughs> um i mean it, yeah nobody's wearing any clothing in this book yeah like yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think about just how monumental this work was and one of the things i was seeing is that a lot of authors and, and filmmakers even that came after would cite him. Early writers like Jack Vance, Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, John Norman, um, all have referenced um, Edgar Rice Burroughs as being a huge influence. Um, even uh, scientist Carl Sagan 
uh, said that he read this book as a child and it made him want to go into the sciences. One of the things that made him want to do that. Hmm. So uh, Ray Bradbury has a quote where he basically says that um, Edgar Rice Burroughs may be one of the most influential writers of all time because of the number of scientists that has that t- has told him over the years that that uh, he was influential and in, in making them want to study science. Yeah, I I do want to mention. I think I alluded to this earlier, but I feel like this is one of those works, or like you know the 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 John Carter stories in particular um, mm. is one of those things that I feel like people know about without maybe having read the source material as much. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I feel like especially these days when there's so much other science fiction, even science fiction right. about Mars. Um, and also because our understanding of like what Mars is actually like um, is a little different now. Um, I feel like maybe people aren't going back and reading some of the older works, um, but mm. they're still sort of in the public consciousness and a lot of the concepts that he introduced are just kind of floating around out there. And, and speaking of that, uh, James Cameron has said that the John Carter <laughs> books in particular were an influence on his Avatar film, um, which makes sense if you think about how Avatar goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have George Lucas, who has said that his Star Wars movies were influenced by Flash Gordon, which in turn was influenced by John Carter of Mars. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the, the DNA for some of these like really l- huge sci-fi projects that today, mm-hmm. that, that's the stuff people know. They don't know John yeah. Carter of Mars necessarily. But it's all connected. So I just wanted to give him his due and sort of situate him mm-hmm. in history. Think about where we are. This is around the time where like Titanic hadn't even hadn't even sunk yet. Model yep. T cars are are, are are fairly new invention. Um, it's this is all this is a very long time ago, and I think it's, it kind of helps for me to remember that when I when I'm thinking of this critically. I remember in my research reading that uh, this was heavily influenced by like a very popular uh, scientific writing that was happening at the time um, in which this was the theories about what could be going on on Mars. And and um, so so it's interesting because like it's very dated and it's very wrong, you know, for a lot of stuff. But he was sort of working within what the like scientific consensus was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of just shows how much we've learned since then and how much more we know now. But I was actually kind of um impressed when or when he first goes to mars we get discussions of like differences in gravity differences in pressure um and that kind of stuff like i, I kind of wasn't expecting that in this novel i thought it, it was just going to be like everything was fine gravity was was the same you know what i mean but that actually ends up becoming sort of a key plot point in his his sort of thesis that that john carter is extremely strong because he's been on earth gravity and now he's on mars gravity and so that's why he's superhuman um and he can jump really high and and do all this and fight really well um which is kind of ludicrous but also (laughs) sort of i like that it has some sort of explanation to it that is somehow linked to science i don't know just enough to to be kind of fun i always think it's interesting to to think of you know an older time when you know the scientific community is agreeing on things like gods actually like like with like greek mythology things like that like the 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 philosophers of the day and everybody theorizing like the reason that the tide is this way is because poseidon and all this kind of stuff (laughs) and just this idea that like in like 1911 you you had people potentially thinking that there were actual alien wars being fought on mars is pretty pretty horrifying like i feel like that's going to put the fear of god into some people when uh (laughs) When they're just like, you know, out on a farm somewhere doing, doing God, you know, doing their work. And then they just think, look up and see, see Mars in the distance and think like, yeah, there's a war happening up there. So hopefully it doesn't come here. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, Little Green Men, like all of that, is, that's been around a long time, you know, the idea of, of Martian civilizations. And it's something that, you know, you think about like Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles and like all these writers that you know, a lot of whom I've mentioned are writing about Mars, like Curtis said. And, and you know, a lot of this kind of came back to this. And, and that also, just one more thing about that time frame is I kept thinking about like what it would be like to read this story, trying to imagine to, what it would be like to read a story about Mars and going there and having adventures in a time in which like that wasn't a thing like <laughs> these kind of stories weren't being written or they weren't being published you weren't seeing them and uh i don't know like it must have been kind of you know mind-blowing to read a story like this mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think in a lot of ways this particular story is very much like a western um, and i think you know it yeah. ends up being similar to a lot of the tarzan stories that you know he would write later but uh I feel like a pretty direct antecedent of of this particular tale is, I think it was like right before 1900, maybe 1890 something that War of the Worlds was published by H.G. Wells. Mm. And that has, like that's about Martians coming to evade Earth. But uh, Mm -hmm. I feel like it has a lot of similar ideas about how like Mars as a planet is dying and therefore they have to like do something to, to go out and survive. And here, you know, Burroughs has the same kind of thing where Mars is, you know, a dying planet and they have these like big atmosphere machines that, you know, keep the air going. And there are all these, you know, old cities that have been abandoned that, you know, these other people are now living in. That was really some of the most fascinating uh, parts of the book for me. It was, was sort of this like ancient, uh, heritage of the of the martians that's been there and Mm -hmm. and sort of the dried up you know salt fields because there's dried up uh rivers and oceans and and like the fact that they knew that there were actually there was like dried up you know areas where water had been uh in addition to the sort of ingenuity that they brought into it like the atmosphere machines and real and like to me like i i felt like I don't know. Maybe this is, I don't think it's very controversial, but it's like maybe people won't agree with this. But in general, like I wasn't really interested in what John Carter was doing as much as like interested in what was going on around him. Like I wish that it was just like John Carter died when he first got to Mars. That sucks. And then like we just go off and hear a story about Mars and from this perspective. It's like a reverse alien autopsy where the Martians are like, well, we found this thing. See what's inside. Uh, surprisingly looks a lot like the you yeah know, those, those red marshes <laughs> we have don't know why yeah. yeah that's weird although i think they like he deals with that early in the novel right where someone says like oh yeah you know we can see all kinds of planets and there's all these people everywhere and they look pretty much the same yeah you know yeah <laughs> you're right and that was kind of that was kind of a clever way of of yeah like saying that's why you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so don't yeah. don't question it <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I think it's I think it's time um, we're going to get into some summary so we can get into some more nitty gritty stuff. Um, okay. I do have a very bird's eye view summary that I'm going to read. Um, we, we usually kind of get into more scene by scene stuff, but we don't want to get bogged down in it too much. We want to make sure we give, give ourselves plenty of room to talk. So uh, this is going to be sort of very, uh, <laughs> you know, removed. But here we go. John Carter, a Confederate veteran of the American Civil War, goes prospecting in Arizona immediately after the war's end. Having struck a rich vein of gold, he runs afoul of the Apaches. While attempting to evade pursuit by hiding in a sacred cave, he is mysteriously transported to Mars, called Barsoom by its inhabitants. 
Carter finds that he has great strength and superhuman agility in this new environment as a result of his lesser of the of its lesser gravity and lower atmospheric pressure. He soon falls in with a nomadic tribe of green Martians or Tharks, as the planet's warlike, six-limbed, green-skinned inhabitants are known. Thanks to his strength and martial prowess, Carter rises to a high position in the tribe and earns the respect and eventually the friendship of Tars Tarkas, one of the Thark chiefs. Well, there we go. We're getting into some names that are, are going to be a little bit difficult. Um, there's a lot of Thars, Tharkins, and Tarkins, and um, we'll see how much I can try and keep them all straight. <laughs> yeah, before the recording, I said to Luke, I was like, good luck with all those names, buddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're very otherworldly, which I guess was the idea, right? Yeah. Right. So It's just so, too, too, too similar, I feel, uh, yeah. if, if I was going to make a note. <laughs> 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 so this is the intro right this is our first time we meet john carter as we've said he's he's a civil war veteran um and he's he finds this like sacred cave and he, he's been attacked by the apaches and then he dies and he has this out-of-body experience and then he's transported to mars like what did you guys think of this setup i i didn't know what i was going to expect for how he got to mars but this wasn't really it yeah, I mean, that part was all kind of magical. I, th- I think mm-hmm. uh, these days we call it a portal fantasy <laughs> rather than straight science fiction because it's like, how did this happen? I don't know. And and honestly, it's <laughs> like, you know, if, if he actually told the story to someone, it's like, well, I went in this cave, there was all this smoke. And they're like, okay, yeah, right, Jack. There was all this smoke <laughs> in the cave. <laughs> and then you passed out. <laughs> And you're on the planet, sure, whatever, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, but, you know, you kind of go along with it because you know, he gave this manuscript to his nephew, so clearly like, right. it's got to be true. I wonder if there was people who, who sort of thought that, like thought this was a true account and, and sort of bought into this meta narrative and, and thought like, well, you know, and had arguments about like, well, he was probably just hallucinating because he had this near-death experience. Um, well, that'd be funny if, if people like really b- bought into that. You know, like there are all these think pieces back in 1912 <laughs> about yeah. like, how do you think this really happened? <laughs> yeah, I, no, I do yeah, have to and say, then it, yeah, go and on. Edgar Rice bro goes on Oprah and then he gets called out because it ends up being a lie. It's like, oh, he made it all up. <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to mention that John Carter passes out a lot in this book. It, it felt like yeah, he like, sure. kept getting knocked yeah. out. Conveniently. Like falls asleep or like whatever. And then yep. he wakes up and, oh, look, all this stuff has happened. Everything's okay now. Right. <laughs> it's really interesting, too, because, like, he's so strong and so powerful and can do all these things. But, like, randomly throughout the story, he'll be like, yep. and then he fell over, keeled over of exhaustion. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then I, I was laughing every time he, there'd be some big threat set up. And then he would essentially just punch it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he then he left. <laughs> and it was it was hilarious. Like you yeah. just He's one shot everything. Man. I was thinking like one punch man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think, I th- yeah, I do have to say I think my favorite part is when he's like he's fighting the other guy in the arena, like in the gladiator mm-hmm. games or the great games, whatever they called it. And they're like, I have to pretend to kill you. So let's let's just like vamp until it gets dark and then you pretend to <laughs> stick me with your sword and then pretend yeah. to like cut my throat <laughs> like yeah you know, i don't 
like would it really get that dark when they check at some point like, yeah yeah like, right. is it really dead it, uh, this was before this was before <laughs> yeah, yeah, people like thought <laughs> that critically about things i think you just kind of go with it and in fact yeah. i think it is kind it's, of a, it was kind of interesting uh subversion of, of of sort of what i thought might happen in this scene so i it was pretty cool yeah. but yeah i totally agree it's yeah. like it's getting real dark out there and he just sticks it under his armpit like the oldest trick right. in the book like oh you got me he's like, oh the ketchup he's squirting ketchup everywhere <laughs> Yeah, it's just kind of fun to visualize that. <laughs> Speaking of the uh, One Punch Man aspect, I, it was it, it was funny to me when like the the final battle kind of went down, and he was like, "I want to punch," and he was, he was like, "I just want to punch this man, but I can't kill him because of reasons." And then uh, he's like, "But my friend can punch you," and ultimately, like they they kill the enemy. Yeah, I don't know. Funny. Yeah, I mean, so re- it's pretty. It works out pretty well in his favor that he comes into a society where um, if you kill a man, you become him essentially, and you earn his title, and you get all of his goods and his materials, and and you become the chieftain um, because he sort of quickly ascends through the society. Um, of warriors, um, which I, I was getting some like Spartan vibes from them, but also clearly um, some like Native American stuff going on too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's borrowing from different different pieces of history, um, and you know we we soon realize there's all these different sort of factions that um, all seem to have like a color that they're associated with, you know, um, and we do find these red. Uh, I think they're the Heliumites or Heliumites. Um, who are these sort of red-skinned, otherwise look mostly like humans, uh, <laughs> versions of Martians, which immediately sort of contradicted what I felt like he had set up, which was the idea that the green-skinned Martians were so huge because the gravity was so low and they had these thin bones or whatever. And then mm. we immediately just see someone looks like a human later, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what did, you, what, did you, what did you guys think of the, of the different factions? I found it interesting, like you said, that that we went with a lot of humanoid ones because um, I don't know. I always find it frustrating when we're when we start to talk about space and and uh, everything just looks like a human and in mm-hmm. you know in different sci-fi stories or anything like that really. Um, and then you see things like you see like sea creatures and you see like how diverse Earth is on its mm-hmm. own. And then you would think like no matter what, it's not going to look like us. And then we go to another planet and. Well, it, the first thing we see is like this, the, they have tusks and they're green and all these things. And then like the other 80% of the planet all look like humans. So um, maybe it had something to do with the fact that like it was one of the first stories like this where um, he, maybe he felt that, you know, more humanoid characters were more relatable or something. Yeah. I mean, at its heart, it's, I feel like it's really just an adventure story, um, sort of a mm-hmm. different setting. Um, I did like... Like he spends a little bit of time talking about all the other creatures, like the um, the thoats, which are like the horses that they ride, and how mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. like all the animals, and like the the dog thing, Wula, mm-hmm. yeah. Wula, yeah, yeah, all I the animals. He got, have, got himself a Mars doggo, yeah. Uh, which is one <laughs> thing I one thing I do remember from the movie version, actually. Um, oh, okay, <laughs> I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, but he he did spend a little bit of time talking about how all the animals had multiple limbs. I think. Mm-hmm. which was interesting. But then, like you said, it's like, well, everyone else is pretty much just a human. And he actually, I think, calls everyone humans because they're basically the same. And they're just like different yeah, races even, or whatever. Even I think the green-skinned Martians, I think he refers to as humans mm-hmm. at one point, yeah. which kind of threw me. But maybe that's just like sort of someone from a non-science background talking science and they don't really <laughs> quite get it uh, possible. Um, yeah, so... I 
we, we, you mentioned the dog, which we, we got to talk about a little bit. Um, I know he wasn't described to look like a dog, but I just kept thinking it was a dog, mm-hmm. um, which I think was intentional. And um, I like their relationship. I, it is kind of funny how, like, it seems like John Carter keeps having to, like, teach them how to love, teach them how to, like, <laughs> treat animals with kindness, teach them about friendship and positive emotions. <laughs> yeah. And it was just interesting. It comes in, and like, that's his superpower is that, like, he can befriend animals because he's not cruel to them. <laughs> um, it, it, it was very – it's this very power, powerful, like, sort of um, wish fulfillment fantasy um, that probably was pretty alluring to people to read about at the time, make you feel strong, make you feel like anybody. Because he's kind of an average Joe, I guess. He's a veteran, but – um, he goes there and he becomes this superhero. Like, and he's 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 amazing to everybody. They're like, I can't believe that you're such a man, such of such quality from Virginia. <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I felt like I feel like he's kind of a a lot of people who read this would kind of self insert and imagine themselves in this in this environment. Yeah, that's that's definitely what it is too. It's it's very like you said. It's it's that wish fulfillment. The other thing was this sort of wish fulfillment for maybe the author or whoever but just the 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 way that the women are treated in the story and like they're very objectified and very much like in service of the men and and all this other stuff i feel like men of the time potentially you know he was kind of catering to that audience and and i think they probably re- like reacted well to it so you know it's of a certain time but it's when we when we, i don't know reading it was pretty pretty wild yeah no i mean the I mean, speaking for myself, uh, the, I felt like the tone of the whole thing was very, very colonialist, which was sort yeah. of par for the course back in the day. Um, but just in the way, like like you were talking about, Luke, where he like goes there and has to show them like how to you know civilize themselves or whatever. Um, and I think at, there's at least a couple times when when he's like. Like we mentioned, like they're, you know, like, oh, you killed this guy. So you get all his stuff and all of his servants and all his women or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are at least a couple of times when John Carter's like, okay, I'll take all this stuff. Um, but just so you, you all know, like, I'm not going to observe any of your other customs. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to kill people when I feel like they're not doing right by me. So he's like, like, yeah, I'm going to like take your stuff, but I'm not going to really respect your culture beyond that <laughs> right that's the thing like luke, luke was talking about uh how he's coming in and he's spreading friendship and like all of these things but at the same time he's like but i'm not gonna not kill somebody yeah, exactly. i feel like it you know? <laughs> it's just yeah. what i do i'm john carter bitches <laughs> yeah i even have a note in there somewhere where i was saying like he sure kills a lot of random guards <laughs> he really does <laughs> but again, I think in a lot of adventure fiction, there are all these sort of, you know, minions around that you could kill to show how awesome you were at sword fighting or whatever. Right. And speaking of the sword fights, I, I kept um, being sort of struck by how brief they often were. Like there was a lot of them, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But usually it was like, we're about to have this big battle and then it was over in like a moment, like in a sentence it was, and then it was over. And it was, it often felt kind of like, oh, well, we just built up to this thing and now it's done. And that's just another thing I think with the difference between like modern conventions and and mm-hmm. what we were reading back then. And it was interesting because I felt like this was this sword, almost like a sword and sorcery, but obviously not because it's, you know, sci-fi. Um, but it has a lot in common, I think, with that genre. And and I felt like these sword fights were going to be a big um, focus point. And I was kind of always shocked when how they would go really fast and just kind of get onto the next scene. Um, I don't know. It was probably just a symptom of the time, I would assume. But it, we've already moved into some of this next part. So I'm going to go ahead and read the next okay. uh, paragraph I have of, of summary. Yep. So the Tharks subsequently 
capture Deja Thoris, who is the princess of Helium, a member of the humanoid Red Martian race. The Red Martians inhabit a loose network of city-states and control the desert planet's canals, along which its agriculture is concentrated. Carter rescues Deja Thoris from the Green Men in a bid to return her to her people. So I'm just going to stop there. I think we, we've got to talk about Deja Thoris, the main sort of love interest, the <laughs> princess of Mars from the title. Um, and yeah, very, very sort of, you know, we already talked about like the, the colonialist stuff going on. This is kind of pocahontas to me. Um, reminds me a little bit of Avatar, um, right? It's, it's, it's not only am I coming into your society and, and you know, doing bungling my way through following certain things not following others but i'm also going to woo one of your most beautiful women um again it's sort of a power fantasy thing um and i don't know let's talk about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i was kind of i kept hoping for her to like do more stuff or have more of an opinion Mm -hmm. about things um but i guess that wasn't really what women did in adventure stories back then Sure. Um, I do. Uh, I did. I think I read that actually the the original serialized version of this story had a different title. Right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it was called like Under the Martian Moon. Yeah, like and, but then when they published it in book form, it was called A Princess of Mars. So clearly that was right. a character that really stood out to people, it seems like. Mm. And I think e- even given that she's really just a damsel in distress, like the way she is described and, you know, in this kind of loving detail by John Carter all the time, you can see why she would be appealing to, you know, to readers. Absolutely. And and between her and I think it was Zola um, mm-hmm. was the other sort of prominent female character. Um, they, they were interesting when they were given time to do things. Um, it just was very few and far between moments, right? But um, I, I wanted to hear, I liked hearing about their backstories, um, particularly Zola when she tells the story that we talked about that was omitted um, from original publication. But when she tells the backstory of her parents and being and how they were in love and then that was a forbidden thing and then how her father doesn't even know who she is, which is going to come back later. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that stuff was cool and, and, and some of the highlights of the book for me and, and um, you know, I wish maybe there had been more with uh, with our princess as well, um, but even even she had some of that sort of stuff that that you know was interesting whenever we got it, whenever a little bit was given to us. Yeah, I I do want to mention a female character um, named Sarkoja. Oh who yeah, is mm. the Green Martian who kind of like tries to have John Carter killed at one point, mm-hmm. um, just to acknowledge the fact that like there was a a character, a female character that that did something other that was that wasn't necessarily in service completely to the to John Carter. Um, I don't know, interesting character. The, the sort of like blinding moment where the the fight she orchestrates the mm-hmm. fight and then oh, like yeah. tries to blind him and have him killed. You know, that's that's kind of One Punch Man coming up against something where <laughs> he uh, <laughs> you know, some adversity there rather than just like <laughs> blasting him off with with one uh, flick of the finger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think uh, Zola gets stabbed in sort of the ensuing scuffle, and I thought she was going to die, and I was kind of you know pleased to see that she didn't. Um, but yeah, that was, that was an interesting moment where it was like, he was fighting somebody and he couldn't do anything to help out, but he saw this, this sort of dangerous thing unfolding, um, that he could, he was witnessing. So yeah, I, I did like that moment and that character was interesting for sure. Yeah. Uh, is it Zola or Sola? I thought it was Sola. Okay. I've probably been saying S. it wrong. Okay. Hey, we're still, no, we're starting off season four, right? With, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, the name of the course. I only remember that because of other reasons, but 
Yeah, um, <laughs> back to something James said earlier. I thought you know it was definitely interesting when we got more of these glimpses of the actual Martian culture, like how sort of you know they're uh, like all the stuff that Dejah Thoris goes into. It's like oh, like I mm-hmm. can't marry this person. I can only marry this person under these circumstances. Blah blah blah. Like that was mm-hmm. kind of interesting, um, mm-hmm. and you know made me want to you know spend a, mo- a little more time you know with these actual people rather than just John Carter running around and like killing people right. to get what he wants. <laughs> just punching everything. <laughs> yeah, I kind of just want the story of the the atmosphere generator. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. Sort of overseer. <laughs> like I want that guy's whole. I want the story about him. Right, like he just died. People weren't ready for that's, it. That's that's very <laughs> suspicious. Like, I don't... yeah, exactly. But like, he also and like he also like you know renounces all races. It seems like he's just like in service of <laughs> yeah, he's of, neutral. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's in service of the planet and like that kind of like sort of I don't know. Like, is there an order or something? Like, or is it just a, a dude who decided to do this yeah. at one point? Or we might be maybe you get into more of that because there are eleven of these books. Um, originally published three of them. Uh, I think. Uh, and a lot of people really enjoy yeah. this trilogy, um, but then went on to, to publish eight more after that. So I assume they get into all sorts of things, <laughs> you know, that mm-hmm. we're talking about. And the people who've read them yeah. all are probably like, oh, you got to read book four you know, or something where it's all <laughs> yeah. about that guy. Um, <laughs> you know, you can only hope. Um, and it's not just John Carter punching everything throughout all 11, <laughs> but I'm sure that's a prominent part, piece of it. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to read the final bit of, uh, of, of summary, and we can kind of just talk about everything. Okay. So, subsequently, Carter becomes embroiled in the political affairs of both the Red and Green Martians in his efforts to safeguard Dejah Thoris, eventually leading a horde of Tharks against the city-state of Zodonga, the historic enemy of Helium. Winning Dejah Thoris's heart, he becomes Prince of Helium, and the two live happily together for nine years. However, the sudden breakdown of the atmosphere plant that sustains the planet's waning air supply endangers all life on Barsoom. In a desperate attempt to save the planet's inhabitants, Carter uses a secret telepathic code to enter the factory, bringing an engineer along who can restore its functionality. Carter then succumbs to asphyxiation, only to awaken back on Earth, left to wonder what has become of Barsoom and his beloved. And that's where the book ends. So we can that kind of goes through a big thing here at the end where he's having to fight um, and he leads a war and he's fighting this guy in single combat and, you know, his princess is about to be married off and, and all of that. But uh, yeah, free to talk about anything. Just to jump to the very end where he like sort of goes back to, to earth. Uh, it's reminiscent to me of, of the sort of Narnia thing where the, you know, the children mm. grow up in Narnia and like rule in Narnia and then fall back through the wardrobe and, and, and specifically, I guess the, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, they like, and then they fall back through and rather than be, they were adults and they've spent all this time in Narnia and then they fall back through and they're children again. Um, that's sort of like, I don't know, something about that where like he goes back and like, you know, those all those people that are that are left on that on that planet that he can't he can't get to. I'm assuming, you know, that's going to lead into the next books. But uh, just that sort of like longing for that other planet where he was, you know, a superhero and like everyone loved him. And that was his real life. And now he's kind of stuck back here. Um, I don't know. Interesting little cliffhanger, especially for that time, I would say. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I, I f- thought was surprising 
was I was expecting to be this book a little more to be a little more lurid than it was. Um, I kept expecting like w- there'd be like a scene called like love make or a chapter called like love making on Mars, and I was like, oh, here we go. And and then it was like it's actually pretty mild. I mean, other than like an occasional mention of people being naked, um, and then like he kisses her, and most of the descriptions are about her face, and um, I thought it was like sort of. Um, sort of puritanical in a lot of the in a lot of the ways where I was surprised from like these covers that you see where it's very scantily clad and and I thought we were going to get um something a little more raunchy you know um and it never really gets into that and in fact at the end he marries her and and you know what I mean like there's no there's no like love scene not really um so I don't know I just thought that was interesting and sort of reflection of the times um and, and it's funny that this was still considered to be this sort of lurid, like, oh my god, this is so explicit, kind of, kind of storytelling back then. Yeah, I can kind of, I can kind of get what you mean. Like, I, when when that chapter specifically came up, I was like, oh wow, it's going to be like really explicit, and it's going to get like, <laughs> like you know, it's going to turn into like one of these sex books that that you see people reading, and and we're going to get like, oh, and the you know the the, the Martians or their anatomy is different, yeah. and these like I thought it was going to get very. Very specific, and it just never, it never did. Apparently, they all lay eggs. So yeah. that's true. Or, yeah, apparently, uh, she was hatched from an egg. Yeah, which I feel like that would have been a whole interesting thing to talk about, right? But uh, but maybe <laughs> yeah. that's not where the adventure fiction market was at the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine. Not. Yeah, and I also think um, like the chapter title was probably love making in the sense of wooing her because it was all yeah. about like he was trying to talk her into you know going with him on doing whatever. Um, yeah. And, and, and he does, I think, get into a lot of the sort of cultural, mm-hmm. um, yeah. se- you know, set up around marriage and, and, you know, having mates and, and that all of that gets described in that chapter. And, and in fact, I think this is when he angers her by, um, by calling her princess. Um, it may not be in that chapter, but it's around that time where he, he sort of messes up in the way that he talks to her um and and angers her and that kind of becomes a thing where they're separated for a long time and um it, he keeps thinking like oh she must hate me now and later she compares him to something about like she wouldn't I don't know, something about cleaning her grandmother's cat's teeth or something do you remember this <laughs> yeah, i can't remember exactly like what that. it was yeah. some sort yeah. of saying she says that that is um makes him sound like he's not worth anything to her um and clearly she was sort of hurt by what he had said mm-hmm. and uh I don't know. I mean, that was all interesting, and 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 I think um, I did like that. It sort of the story was sort of a romance in that sense too, right? Um, as much as um, you know, you give a shit for being very action heavy and a lot of sword fighting. It was all about like trying to be in love with this woman, and um, you know, that's something that I think you don't see as much these days. Although it just depends on what kind of fiction you're reading, but. Um, especially in this sort of like macho um, mm-hmm. stuff. Although I, I don't know, it's, he's also like winning the woman through battle, so you do see that. But <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I, I did just like that at the heart of it, it is a romance, though. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, that's an interesting point because it. I think earlier in the book, um, when he's like trying to figure out how to talk to her, he mentions something about how, like, um, you know, someone who's sort of been trained as a warrior, like a fighting man. Uh, has so much trouble talking to girls, basically. It's mm. like, yeah, I know how to kill dudes like 50 different ways, but I can't talk to this girl. Um, and then <laughs> later on, I think you're right. That was sort of a, a moment of strength for her. She's like, I'm not going to put up with your bullshit anymore. <laughs> like, you can't call me mm-hmm. a princess and get away with it. Uh, and I thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting because it sort of harkened back to that 
you know, sort of introspection he had earlier where he's like, you know, I know all this stuff about, you know, fighting and war and whatever, but, you know, it turns out the one thing I really want here, you know, to, you know, win the heart of this, this woman, like, I don't know how to do that except maybe by fighting, which turns out to be okay, apparently. But then he Mm -hmm. does have that little moment where he's like, oh, I need to understand why, you know, this thing I said was wrong. It is interesting though, just as an observation again, uh, to the agency of the women in the story. It's like that she had no option, right? Like there wasn't, there was no decision to be made. Like he was, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was, it was always like, he was like, I will have you. And it was very, uh, you know, but that's what she wanted. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, to, to be fair, like she clearly did not want it at first. Cause mm. I think like the first moment, like he sees her and like, it's love at first sight for him. But she is like not giving them the time of day. <laughs> like, yeah. like, okay, like she was a prisoner of the people that he was hanging out with, but she was still like not willing to even, you know, deal with him for a while in the beginning there. I did, this is sort of unrelated, <laughs> but I did want to mention that, you know, they talk about how the Martians are telepathic with each other and then they can't mm. read John Carter's mind, which is becomes an advantage for him because they can't like, figure out what he's planning but it was always weird to me sort of from a you know science fiction reader point of view it's like that they weren't actually using the telepathy more between them because they talked about being able to like guide their horses or you know their creatures by using telepathy to tell them what what they want them to do Um, which i guess is part of why you know they weren't inclined to show kindness to the the animals and build a bond that way Um, but then like if they were all telepathic with each other it's like they don't really need to like, like when, like toward the end, John Carter's like hiding behind a curtain and eavesdropping on them. It's like, they don't need to talk to each other, right? Like the, the head guard can just like telepathically tell everyone, this is what we're doing now. And, you know, yeah. so, so I feel like that was one thing that, you know, again, it's like, it's, you know, very early 20th century and people are just kind of starting to think about these sort of fantastic things. But I thought they could have, uh, and maybe it's more of a thing in, in the later books, but it seems like, you know, it's it's a weird thing to bring up and then, like, not really explore that part of the world. Anyway. Yeah, definitely. Right. This may be a very modern complaint, but that Yeah, of... it, it, it's something that I feel like we've gotten a lot better at, right? Like, introducing a fantastic element mm-hmm. and then just really figuring out all the ways in which that would affect the world and would affect society and people and how they interact. And it's like he has this thing set up, but he doesn't quite go into it. Sorry, my dog is making noise. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's actually a lot of stuff in there. Because, like, at one point, like, he's in one of the cities and he goes with someone to this fully automated restaurant. And, mm-hmm. like, the description makes a point of saying, it's like, like, no, like, human person ever touched any of the food. It was all done by machines. Um and of course they have these, you know, huge atmosphere plants. So like there's clearly all this technology that still exists and still works. Um, and people are able to use it, but then, you know, are they not building new things? I guess they're building airships. You know, I had a lot of questions about this book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I to say. yeah, I, I agree with both of you. Uh, this sort of, there, there's so much like set up so many things that I think maybe were just in there because they were cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the airships are, are cool and they do play a part to an extent, but like seeing something like that in a, in a novel of this genre now 
is like immediately say, like it sends me as a reader into thinking like all right how is this going to play a, a factor in the final conflict in some way like the the sort of te- to the fact that, that you brought up Curtis the the telepathy not you know ultimately having some huge payoff seems like it just seems weird it seems just um like odd yeah i mean i guess it was useful when he had to you know reset the atmosphere plant and he was the yeah. only one who could yeah, do true. it cuz he had been you know randomly you know basically overheard that guy yeah, I guess well, that's true. and of course he very easily picked it up, which I well, thought was kind of sure. funny. <laughs> He's just <laughs> He's like, John Carter. Oh, you guys can speak with telepathy? Oh. I can do that now too. <laughs> Except for I'm, you can't read my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did like that that scene at the end where he sort of has to like rush, you know, as he's there with with uh, Deja and like you know the air is running out on the planet because the atmosphere machine's malfunctioning and like he has to rush over there and like. I thought that was all really interesting stuff. Like I actually liked all, basically I liked the ending a Mm. lot. Maybe not even the battle that led to the end, but like the actual ending that would lead us into book two, I'm assuming. Right. So I have a note here and I want to see if you guys picked up on this too, but um, it it felt like they were talking about the society as being sort of communist and and sort of like shared property and a Mm -hmm. lot of this stuff. And it felt like it was trying to be sort of like, you know, As an American, we know that this is bad. <laughs> you know, I was picking up on a lot of that. Yeah, no, I did. I did sense some of that too. I think they were talking specifically about the Green Martians, right? Where mm. everything's communal, and and I think specifically, he spends some time talking about how the children like don't really have parents, which is not true, right? They don't, they don't, they don't know who their biological parents are, but like they have right. a family, right? Like. The hatchlings right. hatch and like someone takes the egg and raises it. Like that's your fucking parent, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and, and I feel like that it's kind of a weak excuse uh, for saying that. Uh, and, and again, you know, this is whole all through the lens of you know John Carter, right, and, and what he knows about child rearing or whatever. And also, you know, at that time, what people thought about, um, you know, maybe societies that were considered you know less civilized or like less cultured than i guess 1912 america but <laughs> right. yeah that, that was kind of a weird thing for me too okay so i feel like we've we've sort of rounded out our thoughts here and i think it would be a good time to sort of just give like a final kind of like what did we feel about reading this book how did we how did we come away from it how are we going to remember it going forward for me i'll speak first it, it, this is i think an interesting sort of historical look at sci-fi an early piece of sci-fi that clearly is incredibly influential I was able to have fun with it um, and enjoy it. And I was surprised that, in, in fact, I didn't have more trouble reading it than than um, other things that I might written around the same time. Um, I was able to read it fairly easily. And so I think if you're someone who is interested in history and interested in uh, especially uh, sort of the, the history of pulp and sort of uh, early genre work, um, this is a this is an interesting novel to check out, and I think um, if you've listened to this podcast, you're probably the sort of person who would be interested in that. and And in that sense, I do recommend it. Yeah, I mean, for for me, it was I think it was interesting, maybe more as an academic exercise to actually look at mm-hmm. the you know the primary source for a lot of you know things that we see in Mars fiction these days. Um, and I, I I will just mention that. I think part of the reason that Luke asked me on this particular podcast is that the the first novel in the first novel Waypoint Kangaroo I I have fun with some of the like ideas from the the John Carter series because I have a 
a spaceship um, that's a cruise ship going from Earth to Mars, um, where in that future Mars is actually colonized. Um, and it's the Princess of Mars cruises uh, instead of <laughs> instead of you know Princess cruises from a love boat. Um, and there's and I just throw in like sort of little references here and there, like there's a Barsoom buffet on the ship. And uh, oh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, and there's a, I think there's like a, the gift shop is called Solus Sundries or something like that. Um, <laughs> just using random character names because I, and I feel like in a very real sense, this is one of those things that you know it's it was so seminal in its day, but now people don't necessarily know everything specific about it. Um, they just kind of know you know what's sort of made it into the pop culture consciousness and and that sort of mutates over time right um like for 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 a specific point of comparison there was a an essay in strange horizons uh, a while ago about the the idea of uh, captain kirk from star trek and how over time the idea of captain kirk has become like oh he's this like lecherous womanizer who's like trying to bone everything all the time. But if you actually look back <laughs> mm-hmm. at the original series, like that is not the character they presented at all. And it's this sort of pop culture idea of what Star Trek is and what Captain Kirk represents mm. that has mutated mm-hmm. over, you know, 50 years or whatever. And, but now like, you know, in the sort of, in the, the rebooted, you know, J.J. Abrams movies, like that is what Kirk has become now because that's right. what people think now. Um, and in some ways, it has very little, little to do with the source, actual source material. And it's just this weird process of, um, you know, how pop culture works, I guess. And so in the same way, I kind of wanted to play with that in, in a universe where, like, you know, people know about these Mars novels. They don't really care to read them anymore. Um, but you've got these cool <laughs> names and, like, it's fun to say, you know, Tars Tarkas of Thark or whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and hey, uh, just since you're mentioning it, uh, Kangaroo in the subject line, email us in and you can get a copy and you can you can find all these references for yourself. Um, definitely didn't k- pick up on those because I had not read this. Um, so uh, I, I'm actually, I think I'm going to reread your book this week since we're just watching the movie and I'm going to be looking for this sort of stuff. Um, I, I'm excited to, to get back into it now that I've had my eyes open to the, to the world of uh, A Princess of Mars. Um, what about you, James? Uh, just, uh, I mean, just from the lens of, of old grandpa, crazy grandpa telling me stories, uh, <laughs> I think I, I appreciate this story for the fact that it is sort of that landmark, uh, that people can look to and say like, okay, this is very clearly, this would influence a lot of things going forward. Um, as dated as it is, I, I still had fun with it. I still enjoyed it. Um, I was, I, I, you know, I was able to take the things that were, offensive at this point and and kind of just <laughs> say okay it was of a certain time and um I, I i don't know i think that i think that there's definitely like you said luke i think there's definitely something there to to kind of dive into if you're interested in this, the historical context of it um but mm-hmm. it's it's also i don't know i i would say like i i almost feel like i want to read more of the novels but uh yeah, I, I think I do want to read more of the novels. I think I'd like to read the re- like finish out the trilogy and then really be able to formulate my thoughts on this because it is sort of like this almost like ancient text for for sci-fi <laughs> where where you can you can draw draw direct 
you know, connections to to mm-hmm. other things like Star Wars mm-hmm. and Avatar, all these things mm-hmm. we've talked about. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think for that reason, it, it's worth the read. Oh, speaking of Avatar, I wonder if those, you know how they have their braids that they connect and they can sort of have this telepathic connection to animals and stuff? Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was uh, the one of mm-hmm. the influence points from this, right? With that, with, we're talking about that telepathy. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Hmm. I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, I want to go ahead and introduce something. We're not going to do it here, but I'm going to set us up for next week. And this is going to be a new thing we're trying this season um, on the podcast. And that is uh, at the end of our projects, um, which, by the way, Curtis is going to be joining us again next week for the movie. Um, and we're excited to have you back, Curtis. And, <laughs> yeah. and at the at the end of that episode, what I want to do is for each of us to go around and Curtis, you're going to go last and we're mm-hmm. going to vote on whether or not we thought the book or the movie was better. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it, it'll, it'll be nice to have a guest here. You can be a tiebreaker for me and James if we do happen to have a split decision. Hmm. Um, and then we'll, we'll sort of have, an, you know, like we'll announce that, you know, for uh, our opinion as the podcast is that the movie was better or that the book was better. Um, so do force yourself to come up with an answer um, <laughs> and, and try and pick one. And, and we'll just, I think it's going to be a fun discussion point All for right. us. Um, yeah. We've sort of resisted doing that in the past. Um, because we we didn't want that to be the focus. Mm-hmm. We wanted to just sort of talk about things and and kind of let it be. Um, but this could be a potential uh, way to sort of engage with our audience and have people. Um, we want you to, to to write in and let us know what you thought or comment on the uh, comment on our posts on social media and let us know. Did you do you agree? Do you disagree? Um, and we just ask that people be you know be be kind to each other in the comment section. Don't don't get nasty. Everybody has you know entitled to their opinions. Um, but yeah, we just want to have a start a dialogue with people, and we're hoping that this will be something going forward this season that'll work for that. Um, we're gonna give it a try. So next week, look for that at the end of the episode. We'll we'll kind of give our give our uh, give our votes. All right. Yeah, Luke and I were talking about when we were talking about doing this. We we talked about you know the reasoning for not doing it up to this point, but. Uh, we just i think it's it's mostly for the fun of it like we we want to do this from a place of love like we don't want to be like trashing something and and saying like this is better no matter what nobody can say any otherwise i think it's just it'll be fun for us to decide uh have this kind of point going forward and and hearing everybody else's either differing opinions or similar opinions mm-hmm. uh it, it's it, yeah i think it'll be a, a cool way to just kind of engage with with people all right you re- and you're you're going to be prepared for that next week curtis uh yep i will I will definitely form an opinion. <laughs> I mean, it might be tough given this specific project, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm excited to watch this movie now. Like I said, I, I know next to nothing about it. I think I saw a trailer for it originally. So all of my knowledge about it is basically from a trailer I barely remember. So I'm excited to see what they did with it, how they tried to adapt all these different parts and, and the choices they made. So if you're mm-hmm. interested in hearing that, make sure to come back next week with us. So before you go, Curtis, I wanted to give you a chance to let let our listeners know like what you have going on right now. I know you got some stuff in the works with Serial Box, and you could take a chance to talk about that and let people know where they can find you online. Sure. So the Serial Box thing that's coming out uh, at the end of this month, actually, is called Machina, and it's a series as created by Fran Wild. Um, I'm on the writing team along with Fran and Malka Older and Martha Wells, who wrote the uh, the Murderbot novellas. Mm. Uh, and that is the premise is rival tech companies that are building AI robots to go explore Mars. So again, you know, Mars is still a big go. thing in science fiction. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, 
yeah, there's, you know, there's robots, there's tech rivalries and a lot of interpersonal relationships. Um, so we're really excited for people to see that. James, um, you, you might be interested in the fact that the way they're writing these is kind of like a, like a writer's room for a TV show, right? Isn't that kind of the concept mm-hmm. behind this? Which I think is yeah, pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. so Serial Box, uh, it's serial like serial killer. Um, so oh, you have cool. a website or an app you can download to uh, listen to all these. They're all produced in audio format or you can read the text. And yeah, they get together teams of writers to collaborate. So like I said, Fran came up with this idea and then she invited the rest of us to join her to develop it and then actually write out, uh, I think it's like 10 episodes in the in this first season. And we all break the story together and talk about what's going to happen. And then each episode is written by a different person. So you get a slightly different voice and a different perspective on the same characters, the same setting. So that's also kind of fun because we're always uh, reading each other's stuff and giving notes on it. So it's that's so cool. Yeah. So on the writing side, it's been a lot of fun, and hopefully, it you know it's fun for people to uh, to read or listen to. Absolutely, and you guys should all check that out. Uh, what serialbox.com? Where can they find it? Yep, serialbox.com. Um, if you go to my website, curtisccchen.com, um, it should be somewhere on the front page or something like that. If I did my job right, um, I, I'm also on Twitter as Curtis C. Chen. Um, yeah, you can search for the Kangaroo Books at your favorite bookstore, and. The other Serial Box series that I worked on last year is called Ninth Step Station. That's a near future police procedural set in Japan. That sounds awesome. That that's such an interesting way to write to write something like that. That's that's really cool. I've always felt like that that environment, but must be very interesting. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a lot of fun for me you know, on the writing creative side, um, and readers seem to. Uh, have really liked Ninth Step Station, and hopefully they'll enjoy Machina as well. We're going to go ahead and let you go, Curtis. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad I finally got to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Thanks, Curtis. All right, and we will see you next week. All right, well, we have started our season again this year on Mars. Um, I don't know if you remember, yeah. we did we did The Martian as our first project last year. Not planned, yeah. but we've we've done it. Um, I wonder how many Mars projects we can start each year <laughs> yeah, with. Maybe it'll become a maybe it'll become out. a uh, what is it a tradition we can keep doing. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We'll go to another planet. It feels good to be back too. I don't know if I spoke about it enough in the episode, but it's it's good to be back. We took a couple of weeks off, yeah. and like it just it's good getting back home, getting in the feel of things again, getting ready for twenty twenty. Oh yeah, twenty twenty is going to be a it's going to be a year. I think from the early indications, <laughs> it's it's going to be something. Right. Um, it already feels like it's, it's been be about four things. months, but somehow we're only two weeks in. Um, yep. pretty wild. Um, can't believe it's 2020, but, uh, we're glad we're still able to do this and, you know, thank you guys for listening. Um, in particular, I want to shout out Ben E, Chris C and Stephen E, who once again, were the ones who, uh, commissioned this and next week's episode. So shout out guys. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you guys. Um, also, if you enjoyed this episode, if you could please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use, that would be awesome. It's a great way to get the word out for us and help our podcast continue to grow. Also, connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film And be sure to join that Council of Inklings we have on Facebook because we post polls, we post any sort of adaptation news we see, any sort of things that we're, we're feeling. We actually posted a picture Luke did posted a picture of uh, his new boom arm right. for his for his microphone, which we were able to get because of funding 
through Patreon because of people supporting us and, and helping us continue and upgrading our equipment so we don't have like dilapidated, <laughs> like completely falling apart yeah. boom arms and things like that. So thank you guys so much. It was funny. I was telling you at the end of our last looks, uh, I think, or maybe the one before it because I recorded last looks when I was in Florida, but the last time I used my old arm at the end of the recording, it just like fell straight down and wouldn't come back up again. Like it quit. Yep. It was done. So <laughs> this ended up being, it ended up working out. I really needed a new one. This one's fantastic. So shout out to our patrons who made this thing possible. And if you want to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com slash ink to film. And you can see all the different tiers we have on there, all the different things we're offering. Um, definitely check that out. We do monthly bonus episodes. We're going to do another one of those coming up here soon. So check it out. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. And thank you to Jennifer Delazano for providing our transcripts. All right, so one last time, if you guys want to get a copy, enter to win to get a copy of both Waypoint Kangaroo and Kangaroo 2, send us an email with Kangaroo in the subject line. Let us know, and we'll enter you to win it. The winner will be announced the Monday following our film episode next week. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for checking us out for the start of Season 4, and we hope we'll see you again uh, next week. Uh, But until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.